Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I am the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Helene Becker. Helene is a Managing Director with Cowan and is joining us for the purposes of our Aviation Industry Leaders Report. Uh, I should say we're recording this in the first week of December. Helene, thanks as always for joining us. And uh, maybe before we get into the meat of the questions, do you want to tell our watchers a little bit about Cowan and its place in the aviation world? Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Joe. It's good to uh, good to do this. Hopefully, next time in person. Um, uh, Cowan is an investment bank based in New York, and we cover aviation, aerospace, and defense. We also cover trucks, rails. We do the entire transportation sector, including OEMs, um, rail car manufacturing, things like that. Um, Cowan itself has been around for 120 years, I want to say. No, that's wrong. 102 years? <laughs> 104 years. <laughs> Cowan itself has been around for 104 years. And um, we, we're well respected, I think, among um, investors. We do a really good job, deep dives, a lot of collaborative research. We're a really fabulous firm. Um, I love working at Cowan. <laughs> And, and maybe bringing in that, that element of research and your focus on aviation, can you talk to us a little bit about how you saw the recovery progress over the course of 2022 and just your general outlook as we look into 23, maybe split across the various geographies you're focused on? Yeah, so thanks for the question. We think about it as winning the pandemic and losing the recovery for airlines. It's been a really tough year, as everybody knows, no matter what geography you're flying in. Um, there have been strikes in Europe, there have been delays in the US, in Asia, there hasn't been a full recovery. So it's been really difficult to fly anywhere this year. Although I think over the last quarter, maybe three or four months, it's starting to get a little bit better. And um, at least in the US, countries in Asia are starting to open again. China is a big one and it's not open and it probably will continue to be a bit of a question mark. Um, we've had this whole issue with Russia and not being able to overfly Russia airspace. That's been hugely problematic for a company like Finnair, which as everyone probably knows, or as many know, built its entire business plan on connecting Asia and Europe via Helsinki, which is really one of the fastest ways to, to do that. And of course, that's been um, hugely problematic for them. We've had United, as an example, go in and out of India this year because of not being able to overfly Russian airspace. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why United and um, Emirates are doing their co-chair to be able to, to increase um, U.S. connectivity into the Indian subcontinent over Dubai, which is hugely positive because there are over 2 million Indian expats living in the United States. I don't know how many people are aware of how big that expat community is here in the U.S., which is pretty you know, sizable. And many go home um, for the northern summer. So it's been, it's been a tough year. And we're hopeful that things get better, but some of the issues that face the industry in general, and this is not just in the US, but worldwide, lack of infrastructure is a big one, especially in the United States where we don't have enough air traffic controllers. That's a big issue that everybody has complained about um, and has caused huge delays. 
uh, pilots lack, it, it's, it's not as big an issue outside the US because of pilot rules in the US are so restrictive. Big issue here, not having enough pilots and not being able to get pilots easily. A lot of airlines have started to apply to the US government for um, permission to hire non-US citizen pilots and bring them into the US on specialty visas that enable them to do that because we don't have enough skilled workers. And so that's that's an issue that's been plaguing the industry and causing delays. Weather is always a big issue. Um, not having enough aircraft, OEMs, delivery delays, not as bad with Airbus delays, but really hugely problematic for Boeing and the 787 and the 737 MAX. So all those things have conspired to really keep a lid on how much capacity can grow in, in 2022 and probably how much it will be able to grow in 2023. Some of the airlines um, estimate that the industry won't get back to whatever normal is for five, four or five more years because of this lack of stuff, <laughs> all the things that I just mentioned. And, and it kind of speaks to a lot of uncertainties, you say, in that macro environment. And as, as you're assessing it, Helene, you know, when you think of the likes of, and it's not limited to this, but oil, interest rates, inflation, FX less so for US, but very important outside of it. Um, then we've got the geopolitical challenges, Russia and beyond. Um, when you're assessing those, what do you see as being like the key risk factors when you're either looking at the airline community or the leasing community? Okay, so those are a lot of questions to unpack. So yes. we'll start. We'll start with interest rates because I think that's the big one, and it obviously is um, a geopolitical issue as well because there are many countries around the world that owe a lot of money to the wealthier um, countries in the world, and they're going to be hugely impacted by higher interest rates. And we already have many countries forced into recession and not being able to recover because of the pandemic. And I think that whole thing destabilizes the world. So I think that is a major problem. I'm not sure, I'm not, a, I'm not an economist and I'm not really a, polit a political person, but I feel as though um, that is going to destabilize the ability for globalization to continue. That has been, we, we didn't talk about this, and this is a little outside what you're asking me, but globalization has been the major success story since the end of World War II. And the ability to be able to move manufacturing to low labor cost markets, cheap transportation, um, the ability to get is sort of do inventory management on, on, an, um, on a quick basis, um, just in time inventory management was a big story in the 80s, the 90s, the aughts, and that's all changing, right? It's just so expensive to get anything anywhere that manufacturing is starting to shift to near shoring or whatever you wanna call it. It's moving around, it's moving out of China because of geopolitical issues. It's moving to places like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, it's moving back to Mexico, to the US. So lots of that going on. Interest rates, you asked about that, I was gonna mention that. First, interest rates are going to be hugely impactful for airline companies especially, and, and for leasing companies in different ways. So for the airline companies buying new aircraft, most airline companies will um, 
finance those aircraft, right? They don't just write checks <laughs> to buy their aircraft. Um, and, and I think last year at Airline Economics Conference, Jerry Latterman, the CFO of United, mentioned that he did something, he was in the process of doing something he hadn't ever done before, which is writing checks to buy to pay cash to buy aircraft and he usually finances them and and that's true for most airlines but the airlines in the us anyway have very substantial cash positions and instead of using that and taking penalties to pay down debt speedily um, or ahead of when it's due, they're actually paying down debt as it comes due. And instead of refinancing that debt, they're just using their cash. And, and, and as United and others are doing, instead of financing aircraft, they're using cash and they're going to work down their debt, their, rather their cash position that way. And then as things start to stabilize with interest rates and they kind of settle out at a level that's, I would call reasonable, um, I think you'll see them all come back and, and use some of their unencumbered assets to pay down debt, because obviously by paying cash for aircraft, you're unencumbering quite a lot of assets and quite a lot of value. So I think that's something to think about. The other, um, the other side of that equation for, for leasing companies, so um, Angus Kelly, the CEO of, of Aircap, who we all know so well, commented on his last earnings call that he estimates that 60% of all aircraft are owned by leasing companies in 2022. And we had thought it would be 2022 or three um, before leasing companies would own just half the world's aircraft. And of course, because of the pandemic and the destruction of balance sheets, the leasing companies are really the only ones um, other than the tier one airlines who are able to go out and finance aircraft and, and, and put them into um, the airline, the other airlines that that are are needing them or needing to replace older aircraft because of ESG rules and the like, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, the thing about the leasing companies is, is you have to buy right. You have to buy the aircraft at a reasonable cost, and then you have to finance them at an even more reasonable cost. Um, and we're seeing actually cost of capital going up. And we are seeing uh, lease rates actually stabilizing and going up. And uh, narrow body lease rates have been stable for most of the year and demand has been very strong and wide bodies are starting, are starting to come back, um, which has huge implications for cargo companies as, as airlines reinstate long haul international travel. So I don't know if I answered all your questions. No, no, you, you did right now. I appreciate there's a lot in it because it's kind of going just to the, the level of uncertainty, particularly interest rates, as you say, and, and, and what's that going to do to the market? And, and almost a, a dual-edged piece where you're kind of saying US, given the strength, the relative strength of those airlines, right, you're probably in a different place to the rest of the world. And with less source funding, you say 60% of new deliveries means that longer term trend of 50% and above is, is clearly going there. I guess there's a question of how sustainable that is. So do you think if you because you look at your US example, got the cash, I'll use it in a certain way, maybe hard assets. Do you think that'll be broader than the US in that if airline balance sheets recover, that percentage of leased aircraft might recede? Or do you think it might be more the case that, look, the flexibility that leasing has provided, the deepening of relationships with lessors that's happened over the last three years probably means that trend line will continue to tick upwards? I, I think the latter. I think the trend line continues to to, to uh, tick up, and and the reason is I truly 
am one of the few people who probably believes airline companies should never own aircraft. I think they should lease 100% of their aircraft. I understand why they do, of course, because you have huge depreciation cash flow and they're going to operate their aircraft for 20 to 30 years or more. Um, and so it makes sense for them to own it for sure. But leasing an aircraft gives you huge flexibility. You can, you can write contracts that are 12-year leases with you know, the ability to, to extend, but you can also write contracts with six-year leases or four-year leases. You don't have to go out the full 12 years or 14 years. Anything more than that is a finance lease anyway, and, 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 is on, and everything is on balance sheet anyhow. So it doesn't impact the way you think about the debt position, but it does impact residual values and it enables an airline to adjust capacity in a, in a really rapid way. And, and focusing maybe still on the leasing groups, would you agree with the statement that maybe scale is becoming even more important? So scale is important in any sector, but in an environment where we in, you know, a rising, you know, the cost of funds is going up, the ability to access all channels of funding, you know, unsecured debt markets, private placement, alternative lenders, scale just to, is assisting you both on that side and then on the OEM side, if you can get a slot. Your thoughts on whether the importance of scale has increased and a corollary to that is, will that potentially lead to more M&A in the leasing side? Yes and yes. <laughs> and I think definitely more M&A. I think scale is hugely important. And, and the reason for that is the ability to buy right. Uh, that's the most important thing. You have to, as a leasing company, be able to buy the aircraft at a reasonable cost so that you can be profitable and generate a yield on that for your own investors and for your own books. So yes, I definitely think scale matters. I think having one or two aircraft or a portfolio of eight or 10 aircraft um, is probably not going to work going forward. It, it probably, especially in an environment where capital costs are are going up. Capital, higher capital costs means that you need that scale to be able to drive down your um, your lease rate to the most your your interest rate to the most competitive level possible to be able to generate yield for your investor. So yes, size matters. And, and kind of do, do you think when we look at the investor base, then have we seen any evolution of the types of investors coming to aviation post COVID, or do you think it's the similar types of investors, albeit the names change? Um, and it hasn't materially changed. Very interested in your thoughts around the investor base. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> it, it seems to me that we are seeing a lot of hedge funds in and out of the group constantly. I am not really seeing long onlys in the group. Um, my questions I get, the investors with whom I speak, all are short-term focused. They... Um, really just are, are focused very much on potential for recession in 2023. I, I think the airlines are already discounting that. I think that's priced into the way the stocks have traded at least for the last four to six months. Um, but very few long onlys. It's been really disappointing. And I think it's been disappointing for the airlines. Um, I've shifted my contact list away from only hedge funds to more um, folks like in um, more folks like um, ESG investors, investors 
that might be more focused on emerging markets, investors that might be more focused on small and mid cap companies. Um, most of the airlines are mid cap anyway, aren't too many large cap airline companies out there. Um, and that'll change. I, I personally think that'll change because in general, and, and we'll probably talk about this, I have a very differentiated view for 2023 um, versus my peer group. I, I think the airlines are already trading as though we're in a recession. And I actually think they're going to have, a, most of the airlines are going to have a pretty good year because I think demand is still very strong, um, even with higher airline ticket prices. That sticking with my very interesting move to ESG in just a second, but, but sticking on the investor side, and obviously you guys would have great breadth across all the markets you spoke about at the start of our discussion. As compared to other asset classes, so we I, like we we've clearly seen a maturing, particularly in aviation finance, over the last decade, decade and a half. And um, where do you think that sits now versus other asset classes? Most impacted by COVID that we've seen, strong bounce back, but then very exposed from a geopolitical perspective. Do you think we're in a, a better or worse or similar place compared to other asset classes now versus 2019? I Personally speaking, I think we're in a much better place. I really do. I think with higher interest rates, other asset classes start to look a little more attractive, especially um, it, 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 things that are not uh, non-aviation assets. <laughs> um, I mean, real estate for, for most of 2021 was very strong. And then of course, higher interest rates has put the kibosh on at least the residential housing market for the short term. But I think that um, the other thing it's done is taken some of the transient money that had been coming into um, into aviation in the in the 20 teens because they couldn't get yield anywhere else the they were you know interest rates were very low you couldn't get yield um and so people rushed to aviation because that that was pretty attractive and i think over the last year and a half or two years it's a lot less attractive than it was or at least if not less attractive maybe that's an overstatement other assets are more attractive. Um, aviation, I think, is always attractive, but some folks were surprised by what turned out to be a huge country risk with Russia. I think if you asked me, we had this, I and mean, we, we did have this conversation last year, um, I never would have forecast that we'd be in the situation we are with Russia and that airline or aircraft leasing companies rather would have had to um, go to court to get their aircraft back or if not getting their aircraft back, get their, get their insurance proceeds. I and mean, this is you know, gonna be a long drawn out process as we've talked about at other conferences, we've talked about with investors. Um, it could take up to a decade for this to get resolved. And, and so um, it's part of deep pockets and having the balance sheet to be able to withstand it, uh, but the loss of assets, I mean, I think, some of the transient capital that came into the industry were surprised that, holy cow, I can get my aircraft back. Or in the case of the pandemic, when a lot of airline companies shifted to power by the hour leases, that's not what some of those folks um, who were looking for yield had bargained for. So yeah, I think that um, I, I think that it's, it's probably a good thing to get rid of that capital and to have the industry back in professional hands. Just to 
to pull at one string that you talked about there, which is that geopolitical piece. Do your thoughts on China, uh, either as a as a market with investors coming at the space, or generally we know, look, it's, it's a very challenged, still closed off uh, travel space at the moment. Your thoughts on on how that's impacting aviation and aviation finance? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, the one thing you didn't actually ask about was Comac. Um, I saw the Chinese regulator, I think last week or the week before, approved the C919 um, and, and uh, production for the C919. So, so um, that's just another risk. It's another aircraft type. I think eventually, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm not an expert in this field, so maybe I'm getting a little off base here, but I suspect that the Chinese sphere of influence the countries that are in that group will eventually own COMAC manufactured aircraft. It, it may take five or 10 years to do it, but I think that will likely happen. Um, China, I think that lots of different stuff there. Um, in 2014, when the US and China went to 10-year visas, that was huge. And I thought by now, not seeing a pandemic on the horizon, um, we'd have 20 million people a year going back and forth between the two countries. Instead, in 2017, 2016, pre-Trump, we had over 110 flights a week between China and the United States. Now we have less than 10. We've, we've gone down so much and the demand for the market is so small. And the restrictions are so great. Although as we talk today, you mentioned we're talking in early December, China is talking about a lot of cities in China are starting to reopen a little bit. And um, you know maybe there's gonna be demand within the country before there's demand outside the country again. Um, I don't imagine a lot of Americans are anxious to go to China that, that much, um, that quickly. I think you'll see them in other parts of Asia but I'm not sure you'll see them back in China. I think it'll be it'll be um, it'll be slow to recover. Um, so that's that's the way we're thinking about that. And I think from the leasing side, it the whole issue with Russia has added a level of country risk that I think leasing companies hadn't been thinking of pre Russia, <laughs> right? Pre February 28th or whatever 24th, whatever the day was earlier this year. Um, end of February. <laughs> and, and so um, I, I think that as lessors look at putting their aircraft into markets, they're looking at the country risk associated with it. And I think it's costing airlines more money. Um, I imagine that the, it'll be more impactful from a manufacturing perspective for Boeing because of the US-China relationship. Oh, the other thing we didn't talk about, we probably should, is visas. It is so hard to get a tourist visa, a student visa to come to the United States from many countries. And China is one of those countries right now where you might have to wait a year or more. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that the way of the challenges in the market and the, you know, the timing, hopefully the timing issue and when we see a wider reopening. And then it's just it's general retrenchment, perhaps from you know aviation finance. We're seeing you know, definitely rumors of, of that. We'll see how that progresses out into 23. Can we circle back on ESG, Elaine, right, to, to get your thoughts on, 
you know, clearly a fundamental issue for the sector, uh, all parts of the sector, OEM, airlines, manufacturers, uh, debt providers. Your thoughts on how ESG is currently impacting the stakeholders? And then we might talk yeah. about where we go from there. Yeah, I think that um, it's really interesting to me how big of an issue it's become and how it's developed this year. And I think it's going to excel. I think there's huge momentum. It's going to accelerate in 23 and 24. And here's the thing. In 2018, there was almost no discussion outside of a little bit in Europe on ESG and how we were getting to 20. 50 goals, right? Net zero carbon emissions by 2050, that kind of Corsia, IATA, US Airlines, everybody, you know, and I air quotes around everybody has agreed to that as a goal. And um, we have seen in the second half of 22, this huge acceleration of airline companies agreeing with various producers of sustainable aviation fuel to buy lots of it. And the problem with SAF is you can't scale it. it. It's very expensive still, and it's not scalable. And, and I think in the next decade, so 2023 to 2033, that's going to change. Um, and, and, and SAF will probably be utilized for long-haul flights um, or some blend of SAF and fossil fuel will be used for long-haul flights. Short haul flights are another discussion. And then the medium haul, uh, 150 or 180 people going from, uh, I don't know, it's probably a bad example, London to Amsterdam or London to Paris, where actually you can do that by train, um, <laughs> London to Madrid or London, wherever, um, or New York to Chicago or New York to, or LA to San Francisco or New York to, to um, Boston kind of thing. Um, that will be done probably over time with hybrid aircraft. Um, tough, tough for me to get behind battery-operated aircraft, the VTOLs um, for big aircraft. <laughs> right now, those eVTOLs are small. They're four-passenger aircraft. They're designed to replace ground transportation. Um, but flying 150 people between New York and Chicago is, is not on the horizon for that. That's got to be more of a hybrid because the whole purpose, I mean, well, just a couple of things. Fossil fuel is so cheap. It's always been the cheapest form of transport of, of energy. Um, and the problem is obviously it's carbon footprint. Um, but SAF is, seems to be the momentum producer for the industry you know, again, air quotes, everybody is getting behind that as, as an alternative fuel, which is very exciting. Um, I mentioned in 2018, there was very little discussion outside of Europe about this. And then accelerate, you know, not accelerate, fast forward to 2020, we have the pandemic. And I thought for sure, the whole idea of, of SAF and ESG would get swept away and would get pushed under the rug and just delayed and everybody would be dealing with this pandemic. And instead, the exact opposite happened. We saw um, ESG come to the forefront. We saw it be an important part of the discussion um, in the last year and a half or two years. And I think it's getting more and more attention. And I think that's really important because Aircraft that are, are ordered today 
are being delivered in 25, 26, 27, right into 2030, those planes are still going to be operating in the 2040s and in 2050. And we have to be able to have a solution for what happens next and, and how we get to that net zero level by 2050, because everybody, you know, again, air quotes, has <laughs> bought into this is something we have to do and carbon, reducing carbon, reducing our carbon footprint is critically important. And I, I agree with all those pieces, right? And the SAF piece is interesting. You know, it seems to be one government incentivize and, and a bit of technological evolution, right, around synthetic SAF. Um, so uh, a lot of eggs are in that basket. Can I ask you the, the piece around investors' perspective on it? So, you know, with the conversations you're having with investors, how quickly are they hitting on the ESG point? And is it constraining any potential populations of investors in looking at aviation, which will never really be a green investment. Right, exactly so. Um, so there's always, there are always investors who say to me, not investing in airlines, don't bother me. Um, and <laughs> that's, that's always kind of a disappointing conversation. Um, from it's interesting, when, when I have meetings, most people don't ask what I think about it. And most investors, when I say, do you want to talk about ESG? They say no, <laughs> especially in the US. It's not as, as significant as it is elsewhere. But even in Europe, when I have investor meetings, um, I was in London recently for investor meetings. And I said, do you want to talk ESG? No, no, no interest. No, thank you. Um, and it could just be it's a little overdone right now. And people are just focused on trying to figure out if we're going into a recession or if we're in a recession or what's going to happen from that perspective. Um, so I think that in the in the short term, so I would say over the next six months to a year, I don't think we'll see a lot of discussion about it from traditional aviation investors. I think what I am seeing though, is a new group of investors contacting me and that I'm contacting to say, you know, we should talk about aviation because of the things you just mentioned, SAF, government incentives for SAF, airline companies trying to, they're never gonna be the greenest investment, but, in order to have vibrant economies, you need a vibrant and successful aviation industry. That is so important to the world's economy. And I think we all found that out, just how important when vaccine distribution was occurring in the end of 2020 and in 2021, how speedily FedEx, UPS, American, United, Delta, British Air, Lufthansa, and others were able to get vaccine where it needed to go. Um, and that was really important to the world's recovery. Maybe shifting gears slightly, Elaine, looking at maybe the metal side. So I guess when, when we ask generally around investable metal and, and the most attractive aircraft, it often comes back to you know, narrow body, new technology, fuel efficient to what we're chatting about here. Can I get your perspectives on, on just you know, investable metal? So as you're assessing you know, at the asset base that's out there, maybe beyond narrow body, new tech, your thoughts, and particularly maybe a little bit around the wide body piece, which you know, there has been some, I'd say, positive murmurings on in, in the more recent quarters. Yes, so 
Um, I wrote that down so I wouldn't forget. <laughs> That's what I've been doing, taking notes on the questions. <laughs> um, so on that metal, so, so think about, I've used this analogy before, think about the aviation business as kind of a pyramid, right? At the bottom of the pyramid are the airlines that fly narrow body aircraft. Um, we'll just back up one second and say something like 80% of all flights within all flights within a region are generally two and a half hours or less. I mean, it's elongated in some cases because of infrastructure issues, but in general, flights are two and a half hours. And, and then 80% of emissions are generated by 20% of flights. Those are your ultra long haul flights where you need wide body aircraft. Um, the most efficient way of getting people between cities is still via air um, for a variety of reasons. The ability to do business, you know, wake up in Berlin and do business in London and go home and sleep in your own bed. That's huge. Um, and in Europe, it's a little easier to replace short haul flying with, with trains, even though it's less efficient um, because you've got a lot of train networks. In the US, you really don't. The whole United States, I mean, think about the way the US developed, it developed via car. <laughs> the whole, the, the, uh, President Eisenhower built out the interstate highway system as for the army. That was why we, that, that is exactly why we have all these interstates in the US and why everybody has cars and we don't have a lot of trains or some, but it's not efficient. Um, so when you think about that pyramid, there are what, six or 700 airlines that would use a narrow body aircraft. So if you're a leasing company, that's the aircraft you want to own because you can move it easily. You can, it's kind of like a plug and play. Oh, business in this region isn't going well. This economy is in a recession. Let's just take the aircraft out of that uh, as an example, Brazil, and put them into India where things are going well. Or let's take them out of India and put them into China where things may be going well. Or take them out of China and put them you know, in the United States. So you can move aircraft, you can move those narrow bodies around easily because there's huge demand for it. Then you go up the pyramid and you get to your smaller, um, your smaller, um, I don't I guess wide bodies, although they're not really wide bodies, like the international uh, 757s, the 321 NEOs, so larger. I mean, I know those are narrow body aircraft, but the demand for those is not as great because they have specific missions, um, but they're sort of US East Coast, Transcon, um, US East Coast to Europe, Western Europe. Then you go, and then there are fewer airlines. So those aren't as, as the A321 is going to be a great aircraft for people. So I'm sure the leasing companies will want to own that. Great fuel efficiency seems to be in, in, in huge demand, doesn't really have a competing aircraft out there. Um, then you kind of go up to the 767s and the 787s, the A330s. Um, and then again, as you go up the pyramid, you have fewer and fewer airlines that are going to use that aircraft for their specific missions. And then you get to the top of the pyramid. Um, the, the penultimate group, I would say, is the A380s, which are being retired, the 747-400s, which are being retired. And then right at the top is the freighters. And I find it very interesting that right at the top of the pyramid are freighters. And all of a sudden, what, what seems to me to be right near the top of the market, lots of people are piling into freighters. So all of a sudden, 
we have a lot of demand for freighters, which you didn't specifically ask me about. But, but I was going to. <laughs> there, <laughs> there are probably only, what, 15 or 20, maybe 30 groups that would actually use those freighters. And the fact that all of a sudden leasing companies want to get into them is a little scary because it seems to me that it's right at the top of the market. I think the wide bodies in the middle, the 787s, the, um, the, the, the A350s, the A330neo, I think those are great aircraft because they have great, they, they have a specific mission. They're fuel efficient. They're new aircraft. I think those are, are probably in high demand. Um, they're attractive. Um, People like being in them, 787 especially. You don't you know, come off as, as tired as you do with some of the other planes. Um, anyway, so I think that, um, I think the aircraft that are most investable remain the narrow bodies for the reasons we talked about the bottom of the pyramid. I think the newer wide bodies, hugely interesting to me. Not sure what I think about the bigger wide bodies. The 777 is probably okay because it's a two engine aircraft and why have four engines when two will do? Boeing is no longer making the 747. I don't think Airbus is making the A380. Um, I think that's done aircraft. Um, and, you know, the A3, I don't mean to be punny, but the A380 never really took off in the United States the way it did elsewhere in the world. But again, it's the specific mission for which the aircraft um, is it being asked to do. And, and of course, the, the leasing companies never really embrace the largest wide bodies because of the lack of users for the aircraft. Can I, can I delve a little bit bigger on the cargo point that you mentioned? Um, you know, always has been a spiky type of market. And we'd seen uh, a, probably a step change post-COVID with, as you say, people having an assumption that, that you know, e-commerce is here. This is a real step change. Your thoughts, you, you voiced a little bit of skepticism there around that market. Can you talk to me more around your thoughts on, on cargo and where that might go from here? Yes. So this... Cargo reminds where we are <laughs> the whole cargo ecosystem right now reminds me of when I first started following airline companies all those years ago, it was order at the top of the market, take delivery at the bottom of the market. And I feel so strongly that we are there for cargo. Um, it makes me very nervous to see shipping companies getting into the cargo business, Maersk, um, Mediterranean shipping, CMA, CGM, all leasing in cargo aircraft from, from various providers, Atlas Air being one of the major providers of cargo aircraft. Um, Amazon, obviously, getting into the cargo business and, and growing its fleet. Um, I think they have 110 aircraft, and uh, we think they need 200. So we think that's going to be a big growth opportunity. Um, I, I'm really concerned about all these cargo aircraft being manufactured and delivered right now because I think we're right at the top. And um, I think shipping is, is rates have come down quite a lot um, from where they had been. Um, at some point, the airlines, and this has already started, um, as countries reopen, international travel resumes, and with it, cargo space in the bellies. And that 
that is going to take some of the demand away from the main deck freighters. Um, IATA data has been pretty bad all year. I think it, and, and October was the worst. It was down, what, 13.6% in October. I think the month, I think March was all, March or April. I think it was April was down about 10% or 11%. That was the worst until we got to, um, until we got to, to October, which was awful. And I don't see that, I don't see cargo getting significantly better in, in the next six months to a year, especially if we're in a recession. Um, we didn't talk about this, but I cover FedEx and UPS as well. And, and FedEx has reduced flying um, after the peak. They'll probably park additional aircraft. So they'll park the oldest planes, right? They'll, they've got an old fleet of A300-600s. They've got MD-10s, which are going away. I think by the end of this fiscal year, they'll be a completely out of that one. They have MD-11s. Those planes will go, will be the first to be parked, to be replaced by the 767-300 freighters they have on order. Um, but I'm really bearish on cargo right now, oh, as no. you can tell. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> It's an interesting take, right? Uh, and and look, a market a year ago, people were very bullish on. Like you can you can see some challenges that are definitely coming through. And um, superb insights, Elaine. Just in closing, um, can I ask you as you look out into twenty twenty three and all these uncertainties you chatted about, what are your optimism levels like? Yeah. So great question. We have a um, we have a huge, actually differentiated view on the whole outlook for next year. I personally think um, my team and I have uh, published a report where we talk about this at great length. Um, we believe that um, 23 is demand for air transportation is going to continue to be strong. Um, people are, are um, working in a hybrid environment. A lot of people haven't been called 100% back to the office. People don't wanna go back to the office all the time. They like the idea of being able to work from anywhere and um, are increasingly doing so. And I think that that is causing um, airline companies to be surprised at even with an economic recession um, at the demand we're seeing. Um, we saw 28 and a half million people travel over the two weeks um, for American Thanksgiving. That was an elongated period of time. It used to be just four days. Now, then it got to five and six. Now it's close to two weeks. Um, demand has been very good. I think that will continue. I really do. I think that, I think the, the stocks, the stocks have behaved as though we're in a recession. They're back to 2020 lows. And yet revenues are about 60% of the way back to 2019 levels, maybe a little bit more. Um, I think we think 2023 revenues are going to be pretty close, if not surpass. Demand, leisure demand is, is really, I don't want to say off the charts because it's so cliche. Um, but I didn't give you these numbers. Um, in 2019, we had roughly two and a half million people a day traveling. 
And a million of those were domestic leisure and a million and a half were business and, and international. Earlier this year, we were seeing 2.2 million people, 2.1 million people a day traveling. So with really close to where we were. And um, yet business was down about 50% and, and international was down about 60%. And so when you do the math, that was about 700,000 people a day in those two cohorts. But 2.2 million meant that you were seeing, what, sound a million three, a million four domestic leisure. So that's a 30%, 40% increase over where we were. Now there's been a shift in mix. Um, international outbound is, is flattish. It's within 5% and in September was up 3%, October was flat. So <clears throat> US outbound is very strong. And in part, it's a strong dollar. U.S. inbounds down about 27%. So combined, they're down about 15%. Business is down about 20% off 2019 levels. Um, so combined, that's about a million one, a million two, but we're still 2.4 million. So we're at a million two domestic leisure. So we've already come down from being up 30 to 40% year over three to being up 20% year over three. Um, but it's a better mix, right? Because international and business are higher price points. So I think we're gonna have a great year in 2023. I know that I had a lot of negative comments in there, but I, I really think that the stocks are anticipating a crappy year. And I think we're gonna have a better year than people, investors think. And I think there'll be a pile on into these stocks at some point, uh, some point early next year. And on that very optimistic note, uh, <laughs> I hope it rings true. Uh, I'd like to thank you as always for your insights and wish you and Count a very successful 2023. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks, Joe.